pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we might learn of you in the reading of it, in the studying of it. And we thank you for giving us the word, Jesus Christ our Lord, that we might learn through him about ourselves, about our great unworthiness, and about how you make us lovely. And that you love us even though you fully know us. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would fill our hearts, capture our imaginations with the gospel, and that your spirit would be amongst us, stirring our affections and creating disciples out of us, that we might follow you and live for you and you would receive all the glory. We pray this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this is now the third Sunday in Easter. And during this season, we set an emphasis upon rejoicing in the victory of Jesus over death. The Alleluia's are back. And in our worship, we are celebrating. God has acted decisively within history for the sake of his people by raising Jesus from the dead and giving to us the hope of resurrection through faith in him. And our rejoicing does not nullify the need to to simultaneously grieve the persistent brokenness of our world as Jason Bobo reminded us last week. But in Easter, the sweetness overpowers the bitterness. And we are filled with hope that all that is lost will one day be restored. And as the old hymn goes, Jesus will repay from his own goodness all that he takes away. And in order to facilitate this turn to rejoicing, we are going to spend the next several weeks in the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are a perfect companion to the book of Lamentations, which we work through in the season of Lent leading up to Easter. If you recall, the historical backdrop to the book of Lamentations is the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. The city and the temple had both been torn down and it was a smoldering wasteland. The author of Lamentations uses the absence of the festivals in Jerusalem to illustrate the great loss of that city. He gives voice to the streets leading to Jerusalem to express the loneliness that the holy city experienced in the exile of her people. The streets, together with the gates of Jerusalem, mourned. They grieved and groaned because no one returned to Jerusalem anymore. The pilgrims were all gone. The streets missed the shuffling of feet and the gates missed the loitering of people and together they missed the sounds of laughter that once filled that holy city three times a year as the saints returned to celebrate the ways in which God had acted to redeem and preserve his people. Lamentations is a book of wailing. There is no singing. And it's all because Jerusalem is in ruin and the festivals are no more. But the Psalms of Ascent were written precisely to be sung. And they are called the Psalms of Ascent because they were written to be sung by worshipers ascending to the city of Jerusalem in order to celebrate the festivals. 
there are 15 of them, and the saints would sing them as they traveled from their small towns and cities on their way to the festivals in Jerusalem. Their use depended on a different situation in Jerusalem than what is pictured in Lamentations. The Psalms of Ascent require for there to be something to ascend to. They assume the city and temple are both standing, which is precisely why we are going to sing them together in this season of Easter. Because through the resurrection of Jesus, he has restored our fortunes and has given us reason to hope and to sing. We were like the city of Jerusalem, pictured in lamentations in the state of our sin. But Jesus has brought us forgiveness through his rejection. And he has brought us life through his death. And in him, we have reason to celebrate. So we are going to let the saints of old teach us how to sing. And this morning, we're going to begin with Psalm 122. Psalm 122 begins with a person who has just received an invitation to go to Jerusalem for one of these festivals we've been referring to. And their response is gladness. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And the entire trip to Jerusalem, which would have taken many days, is condensed into that first verse. So that in the first half of the verse, the invitation is extended And by the second half of verse 1, they have already made it to Jerusalem. And you can hear the the awe and the, the joy at having arrived in the words of this pilgrim. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. This is a person eager to be there. They're grateful for the opportunity to worship. They have accepted this invitation with joy. Yet, in verse 4, we are reminded that this trip to Jerusalem was not entirely optional because they were also commanded to go up to Jerusalem to worship. It was decreed for Israel, for the tribes to go up to Jerusalem for the, to the, for the festivals. And so this worshiper is not just voluntarily accepting an invitation, but is also responding to demands set upon him. And yet, he's glad still. He's happy to fulfill this religious obligation that God has set upon him. And we must ask ourselves why that is. We must ask ourselves, what is it that made this man glad to fulfill the religious obligation of worshiping God with the saints? Because this obligation endures to the present day. And it has been set upon us just as it was set upon him. We're under no obligation to go to Jerusalem. It used to be that Jerusalem was the one location where a a person could go to offer sacrifices to God and to worship with the saints. But Jesus has changed all of that by becoming for us a mediator and representative so that we can have access to God through Jesus wherever we are. And he he sent his Holy Spirit to take up residence in us so that we don't have to travel to come into his presence. We don't go to him. He has come to us and promises to be with us always. So we can worship and offer ourselves up as living sacrifices wherever we are. But the insistence 
that we do this together, that we meet together as the church remains. And you heard it in the New Testament reading for this morning where the author of Hebrews writes, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. As Christians, we are under obligation to to meet together, to come to church, not out of some legalistic requirement, but because it's the most consistent thing we can do given the new reality that Jesus has created in himself. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died, each and every one of us died as well. In him, our representative man, we were all put to death. And when he was raised, we too were raised to new life. But the life we were raised to is dramatically different because it is now in Christ. In our old life, we lived for ourselves, for our own pleasure. But after we were put to death and raised in Christ, our old selves no longer exist. And we exist now for his sake, for his glory alone. It is our common story as Christians. We are all in Christ. And by virtue of of us all being in Christ, we have become united in some mysterious but genuine way to one another. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 that we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members one of another. We belong to each other in Christ. He has united us and so therefore we have an obligation to be together, to encourage one another, to care for one another, to provoke one another as Hebrews says, to love and good deeds, to challenge one another, to show each other love. Neglecting this fellowship, this regular gathering of the saints makes about as much sense as neglecting your right foot. It's a denial of reality, of the new reality that Jesus has created. We owe it to one another and we owe it to our own selves, we owe it to Jesus. But still, we we must ask ourselves how it is that the psalmist could respond to this same religious obligation with gladness. Because we greet obligation with begrudging obedience at best and proud resistance at worst. As a rule, we believe commands rob us of freedom, they diminish happiness, and eliminate, eliminate spontaneity. And we also believe that in order for some action to be truly meaningful or genuine, it must be unprompted, free, and full of feeling. The problem is, as Eugene Peterson points out, feelings are great liars. If Christians worshiped only when they felt like it, there would be precious little worship. If we delayed our worship of God with the saints until we felt like it or until it was spontaneous and unprompted, then we will never come at all. There will always be something that feels better to us than coming to church, an extra hour of sleep, ricotta pancakes, a sporting event, a a slow morning at home with an extra cup of coffee, a walk in the woods. But none of these things 
will fulfill the purpose for which you were created in the first place, which is to worship God with the saints. And I'm not saying you can't glorify God with, while doing those things, you absolutely can. But God did not save you for yourself alone. He saved you for the sake of the world, for the sake of the church, and he has united you in Christ to the church. You will dance very poorly if you only have one leg. And our life together is diminished. Our, our efforts to live faithfully in Christ are compromised when you are missing. We need you, we're dancing with, with one leg without you. You strengthen us. Your presence encourages us. And we miss you when you're gone. We need you. And to be frank, you need the body of Christ as well. And God knows this. That's why he commanded we not give up meeting together. And the psalmist knew it too. And that is why he was able to respond to this religious obligation with gladness. Because he knew that God is commanding it for our good. In worship, we're strengthened. And we have the opportunity to encourage the saints. And we get to embrace and participate in this beautiful yet mysterious reality that Christ has made us members of each other. And we fulfill the very purpose for which God created us in the first place, to worship him with the saints. But the psalmist is glad too because in worship he experiences the unity and diversity that the world can only dream of accomplishing apart from the gospel. In verse three, the psalmist is reflecting on the city of Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. To it the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Uh, scholars differ in their explanation of what it means for Jerusalem to be bound firmly together in verse three. But a frequently held position is that the psalmist is talking about the actual physical compactness of the place. The streets are narrow. The living spaces cramped. And given the fact that it was positioned on a mountaintop, there was little room for outward expansion. And this physical compactness is, a, is significant because it means that the tribes who traveled there for these religious festivals were practically on top of each other. They shared close quarters. And the tribes of Israel did not get along very well. There was animosity between them that often bu bubbled over into violence and war even. The tribal differences between them were exaggerated and often pointed out. And their long historical memory made reconciliation between them extremely difficult. But they did come together in worship. And they did so in a physically compact place like Jerusalem. Their worship of God forced them to transcend their tribal differences and join in the shared praise of the God who created them and saved them irregardless of their race or, gen or gender or socioeconomic status. He makes feuding tribes into friends. It's true that shared interests or hobbies are capable of uniting diverse peoples, but that unity is only as deep as that 
commonly held interests. It's only as deep as a sports team or a particular poet or the many affinity groups that develop around some common interest. But Christianity informs our very identities. Remember, we are all in Christ. Therefore, Christ is able to unite diverse peoples with unparalleled success and longevity. Tim Keller, in his book on marriage, writes this about the friendship that Christ is able to accomplish. Friendship is only possible, he writes, where there is a common vision and passion. I think of what that means for all Christians. For believers in Christ, despite enormous difference in class, temperament, culture, race, sensibility, and personal history, there is an underlying commonality that is more powerful than them all. This is not so much a thread as an indestructible steel cable. Christians have all experienced the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus. We have all had our identity changed at the root So now God's calling and love are more foundational to who we are than any other thing. And we also long for the same future, journey to the same horizon, what the Bible calls the new creation. Christ changes everything about us, from whom we are to where we are headed. And in him, feuding tribes are able to occupy cramped space because Christ brought them there to worship the God who saved them, irregardless of their temperament, race, or socioeconomic status. And think about this even. In this sanctuary, at this very moment, don't look around, are people who would otherwise never spend a moment together and, or even desire to do so because their temperaments are so drastically different or whatever it may be, but Christ has brought us together. And in Christ, we are able to call that person brother or sister. And in Christ, in our better days, we will tell that person, shaking their hands, looking them in the eye, the peace of Christ be with you. And we love them because Christ loves them. And it's amazing accomplishment that has implications far beyond our own fellowship The gospel unites people far beyond any mandatory diversity training ever will. Our problems come from corrupt hearts and not just ignorance. If you wanna see racial reconciliation in the United States, start with the gospel, with the work of Jesus Christ to bring us together in our worship of him. Reconciliation is what Jesus is all about. After reconciling us to God and to one another, He has charged us to do the same. And nowhere is this work more visible than in the worship of God's people. It's no wonder the psalmist was glad to receive the invitation to worship. For in our worship, we get a glimpse of the new creation. When every tribe, tongue, language, nation will bend the knee and sing praises to our Lord and Creator. But there is one more reason the psalmist was glad for the invitation to worship. And that's because Jerusalem was where justice was established for God's people. In verse five, he says, there in Jerusalem, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Now people would go up to Jerusalem to worship and to settle disputes, to seek justice. 
so that worship and the implementation of justice were combined in the mind of God's people. Both things would happen at these festivals, worship and justice, justice and worship. It's a combination that still defines our time together. For in our worship, we hear a lot about the justice of God. But the justice we preach is not that you get what you deserved, but that Christ got what we deserve. We get what he deserved. We deserved to be rejected by God, but he was rejected instead. He deserved the embrace and welcome of the Father, but we received that instead. So the justice of God is, is transformed into grace through the love of Jesus. In Jesus, it is evident what we are. We are sinners deserving of death because it took nothing short of the death of Jesus to satisfy God's requirement for justice. And yet, in Jesus, we see how loved we are nonetheless because he was willing to take our place. This is the kind of love that we all crave but is on very short supply in the world. We desire to be fully known to the depth of our being and yet loved. Too often we are loved but not fully known which amounts to mere sentimentalism. Or we are fully known and not loved which is just cruelty. But in Jesus, we find the love that we so desire. And only in the church will you be reminded that this is how God feels about you. For six days, you're out in the world experiencing either sentimentality or cruelty, but on the seventh, you enter into the body of Christ with gladness. For here, you can be honest without fear. You are far worse than you ever imagined yourself to be far worse and yet you are more loved than you can possibly dream that's the gospel and that is a reason to be glad and you will hear it here every week therefore I will end this sermon with, as the psalmist ended his psalm with a prayer of blessing for the church pray for the peace of the church May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For the sake of my relatives and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.